Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 31. This is the sixth chapter in the fourth and final speech in the third round of dialogue as Job replies to Brother Bildad and also summarizes and brings his entire argument in for a landing. I've mentioned previously that chapters 29, 30, and 31 really all belong together. In chapter 29, Job was remembering fondly how things used to be back in the days when he was enjoying the blessing and favor of Almighty God. Life was good. People respected me, and I expected to live a long life, grow old, and die in peace. That's how things were supposed to go. That's how things should go for people who know the Lord. But then in chapter 30, he told us how everything now is altogether different. I am despised by the scum of the earth. People hiss at me and spit at me when they see me, and I know exactly who's to blame. God has loosened the cords of my tent. He has brought this calamity upon me. I have cried out to him, but he has not responded to me. That's where we left off. And in chapter 31 here, Job brings his speech to a conclusion with a series of negative confessions. The negative confession was a fairly common feature of ancient legal proceedings. Francis Anderson explains how they work, saying, Although made in the interests of one's public honor, it was addressed to God in an appeal against human judgment. Charges have already been made. But no supporting witnesses have come forward. Job has given a blanket denial and left his vindication to God. Chapter 31 completes the protest, which began in chapter 29, with insistence on his unblemished record and continued in chapter 30 with a complaint about the injustice of his present treatment at the hands of men and God, closed quote. So if we want to think of this through the lens of a court trial, this speech is Job's closing argument. And here at the end of it, he basically says, have I done this? Well, if so, present evidence. In the absence of any evidence, I happily call down a curse upon myself. Should my testimony be found in error? If I have done X, then let Y be done to me. That's the standard form in a negative confession. And that's what we seem to be seeing here. Job is declaring his innocence, and he is willing to call down curses upon himself if he's not telling the truth. But of course, he is telling the truth. We know that, and Job knows that. But what Job doesn't know is why all these bad things have happened to him. He believes that there has been some sort of miscarriage of justice, and he desperately wants God to show up to explain why these things have been happening. That's what this chapter is about. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from Almighty on high? 
Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? The eye, of course, is the logical place to begin because most sins begin with the lustful or longing look. We think, of course, of David's abuse of power in the matter with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband. All of that began with a lingering, lustful look. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Job starts here. He says that he has been very careful with his eyes. Adultery is a fool's errand. Job knows that very well. So he has put a gate around his eyes and he will not allow them to lead him into calamity. Verse 5, if I have walked with Falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. Let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, And I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. Then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon and it would burn to the root all my increase. We should probably just pause here and notice something about the way certain sins are weighted in the Bible in general and within the wisdom portion of Scripture in particular. In verse 1, Job says that he has not looked lustfully upon a virgin. And then here in verses 9 to 12, he says that he has also carefully avoided the more heinous sin of seducing another man's wife. The first sin is bad, and the second sin is far worse. We see the same basic assessment in the book of Proverbs. The wise parent in Proverbs says, Proverbs 6, 26, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Both sins will cost you, the father says, but the latter sin will cost you your life. Now, this isn't to say that some sins are not all that serious. The text isn't saying that, and I'm not saying that. The Bible says that all sins are equally damning, but the simple truth, of course, is that some sins have far worse consequences than others. Some sins may lead to embarrassment, others to prison, still others to death. From the perspective of wisdom, it makes sense to speak honestly about these realities. Few sins are associated with more devastating consequences than the sin of actual adultery. If you sleep with another person's spouse, you are inviting a world of hurt into your life and theirs. There is no easy way out of that kind of sin. Sins like that can be forgiven, of course, but the consequences are lifelong. Thankfully, Job says, I was never involved in anything like that. I haven't done a sin like that, a sin that might explain the things that are happening to me. I am innocent of that. I I call down curses on my own head if I'm not, he says. 
Verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket." For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Once again, we notice how social Job's conception of sin and righteousness was. Sin was about how people treated other people, not just how an individual acted on his own before God. Here Job is saying that he has dealt fairly with his servants. If they had a concern or a complaint, He heard them willingly. He did not look down upon his servants as if they were some sort of inferior race. He recognized that they were human beings created by God just as he was. I love what Calvin says here. He says that we can learn from Job's statement that we have a common creator, that we are all descended from God, and then that there is a nature so that we must conclude that all men, although they may be of low condition and despised according to the world, nevertheless have brotherhood with us. Closed quote. In addition to his generous treatment toward the poor, Job makes mention of the fact that he put no trust in his riches. We see that in verses 24 and following. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Again, Job is certain that he hasn't done any of these things and is willing to call down a curse upon himself if he speaks in error. He has not trusted in his wealth, and he has not engaged in any sort of idolatrous worship. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Remember here that Job and his friends have basically the same proverbial view of the world. They believe that if really bad things happen to someone, then it is because they have done something terrible and they're being punished by God for so doing. However, Job asserts that he never rejoices over people who are experiencing divine punishment, unlike some others, he seems to be saying. The elder brother should never laugh or cheer when the younger sibling gets a spanking. If he does, he will likely find himself sharing the same fate. That would be just. 
But that isn't what's going on here, Job says. I have not done that. Verse 31. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. Here Job says that he has never failed to offer proper hospitality. Verse 33. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Finally, here in this section, Job says that he has not covered up his sins. And this is important because that has been the implication in the argument of the friends. They believe that Job is a secret sinner. He presents as a righteous man, but in actual fact, he's a terribly wicked person, doing terribly wicked things and bringing this recompense down upon his own head. Not so, Job says. I have not done that. And that final declaration leads to the climax of this speech in verses 35 to 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Tremper Longman III explains the very legal-sounding phraseology used in this climactic statement. He says, Job's language is appropriately legal here. He has been accused and believes that God is the one who has accused him. Accordingly, he wants a written indictment. He, he wants to know what he has been charged with. Job knows he has been charged with some crime because he buys into the retribution theology of the three friends. He is suffering. Therefore, God is treating him like a sinner. But what is the charge? He demands an answer. Closed quote. Thus, finally, we come to the end of the if-then self-maledictory curse formula in verses 38 to 40. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Those last three verses function as a sort of oath, sealing and confirming the testimony of Job. All now has been said. The three friends have made their case. Job has signed and sealed his defense. And now he awaits an audience with the Lord. But there is one voice still who desires to be heard. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. 
Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 